I'll be reading from Ezra chapter 7, beginning in verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all that he requested, because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. And some of the sons of Israel, and some of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem because the good hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. And I'll pray. God, I again thank you, Lord, for your word, and we, Lord, just stand before you um, wanting to receive from you. We know that we have nothing in ourselves, God, for living this life. We have been made as creatures dependent upon you, and we look to you, God. We know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we ask that you would speak to us, minister to us, God, as only you can, and that you would be honored in us as a result. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I was gone unexpectedly um, last weekend because we had another grandbaby born, and so we drove down to Lake Jackson to meet him, little Maxwell, born on my birthday, May 5th, and on his dad's birthday. So we have three generations now um, on May 5th, so that was kind of nice. Appreciate John standing in for me. And um, this is the last Sunday for most of our students. Um, They will depart um, on Friday. Some will be staying for summer camp, um, but quite a few of them will be leaving. And it's been a great year with them. We will miss them. Um, They've been wonderful. Um, I told them at the beginning of the year in jest that who knows, this might be the year that I will die. And they will remember, I was at his hill when Charlie McCall died. Um, I'm still here, though I did my best last week to (laughs) fulfill that prophecy. My son Michael bought a hoverboard from one of the students, made it look very easy, and with much urging, I finally got on it, only to find out it's possessed. Machines can't have demons. (laughs) So, yeah, you maybe have seen the video. It's on the His Hill Instagram thing. And, um, yeah, first it spun me around in circles. That was interesting. (laughs) And then it took me in a straight line, but I hit a little bitty threshold, and, um, and I went down. So, but I'm still here. Wrist is a little sore. Neck's a little stiff. Ego's bruised, <laughs> but I'm good. Well, we're, um, Ezra chapter 7 is, a, is a, um, a transition point, pivoting point. The first six chapters, if you recall, of Ezra were about the first return back to Israel after a 70-year captivity. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, made a decree that the Israelites, as many as wanted to, could come back to Israel, could return. And almost 50,000 did, but that's a small portion of the the several million Jews that were throughout the world, Um, but 50,000 returned. And their main goal in coming back in those first six chapters was to rebuild the temple. And it took a number of years. They got started, got the foundation laid, faced some opposition. They laid off for a number of years. But really what was going on, Haggai tells us, is that it wasn't so much the opposition, is just that that was kind of a lame excuse for they got their priorities mixed up and they decided they wanted to build their own homes and that was more important. But they got back on track and got the temple finished. And now there was, after the completion of the temple, between the end of chapter 6 and chapter 7, there's um, almost a, a, over a, well, there is over a 50-year gap that takes place And during that time is when we had the book of Esther. So two weeks ago, we looked at Esther, and um, um, 
I may have burst your bubble about Esther a little bit, but my take on it is, is that she and Mordecai were not living the way that God intended, and yet despite their carnality, God remained sovereign, and I think that's really the message. It's not that God is endorsing carnality in the least, but we can take hope in knowing that even when we are not living as we ought, that God is still in control and He can orchestrate things to bring about the accomplishment of His will, as He certainly did in the book of Esther. And so then, um, that, Esther's husband was Xerxes. And now when we come to chapter 7, we have Artaxerxes, chapter 7 of, of Ezra, Xerxes' son. This is actually the second time that Artaxerxes has been mentioned in this book. The first time it was not in order historically. And that was back in chapter 4 where the opposition to Israel is being chronicled. And Ezra took the opportunity to make a parenthetical um, illustration in chapter 4 where he's showing uh, he, he leaps ahead and he, he stops talking about opposition to the rebuilding of the temple and he talks about opposition to the rebuilding of the city, which was something that was happening um, decades later. And in that, um, during that time, there was a letter sent out to King Artaxerxes to find out whether the Jews truly had um, imperial permission to rebuild the city. And Artaxerxes um, wasn't prepared to give them that permission. And so he stopped the work. And so that's in chapter 4, verse 23. It says, Then as soon as the copy of the king Artaxerxes' document was read, then the whole work stopped. And so he stopped it for a time, though. It says in verse 21, So now issue a decree to make these people stop work, that the city may not be rebuilt until a decree is issued by me. Well, now an issue, a decree is being issued, and that's in chapter 7, verse 1. Now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, there went up Ezra, son of Zariah, and then all these lists of difficult names to read, so I'm not going to read them. And the purpose is to tell us that Ezra was a direct descendant of Aaron, and so he was, Ezra was a priest, and, um, and so he was functioning in that, in that um, um, design that God had for him, and also a scribe. So in verse 6, that this Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. So chapter 7, it first starts out by giving us the credentials for Ezra. And then we're going to be told what the actual decree said. So the commission that was given by Artaxerxes. And then chapter 8 will be the actual journey, the return, the second return back to Israel. There will be three returns, one um, um, under Zerubbabel, and one under Ezra, and then another return on, under Nehemiah, which we'll come to when we finish up Ezra. So these are a lot of interesting things going on here, and, and I wanted to, to just um, skip the credentials of, of Ezra. I'll come back to that, but start with the decree itself. And it's a remarkable decree. It's, it starts in verse 11, and it says, Now this is the copy of the decree which King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, learned in the words of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes to Israel. And then it starts in verse 12. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest. So this decree was actually given directly to Ezra. He's not going to have 50,000 people go back with him. It's, it's going to be less than 2,000 men. Um, but in total, we estimate there's about 5,000 men, women, and children that went back with Ezra. And so he's going back because Artaxerxes says, you can go back. So why? And there are some things going on geopolitically at the time that obviously would have contributed to Artaxerxes saying, I know that they've been a problem in the past because that was his reason for stopping the rebuilding of the city, but now he's comfortable with them going back and, and getting the work going again. So what's changed? Well, one, Ezra is, and Nehemiah are two Jews that Artaxerxes knew personally, and, um, and he obviously has a lot of confidence in these men, and there's no reason that they've given him to think that there would be a problem with the, with the nation-state of Israel becoming strong again. But there's another thing going on, and Persia is in decline, and the Greeks are rising. 
And they've had their battles, the, the Persians and the Greeks, and the Greeks have been winning. And now they've actually taken over the, the seacoast of Israel, the traditional homeland of the Philistines, which the Israelites never did a very good job of rooting out the Philistines. And now the Greeks have done that. They've subdued the coastline of Israel, and they have their, their garrisons set up all up and down the coastline of Israel. And so um, Artaxerxes is feeling a bit threatened here. And so it was very much in his interest geopolitically to have a good buffer state between him and Greece. And so it was in his national interest to be good to Israel and to have them favorable toward him. And so he is pouring out his blessings on the people of Israel in part so that he can have a good buffer situation between himself and Greece. But the big reason is that God's using those things. Again, God's in control of everything that's happening in the world, and we're very thankful for that. But God has simply stirred the heart of Artaxerxes. So this is not just him responding to secular events, but he's also responding to God. And so as he gives his, his decree and, and what he is going to permit and authorize, there are a number of things that he says. And the first thing is, you're, you're permitted to go back the people that want to. And so he says, Artaxerxes, king of kings, to the Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law, the God of heaven, perfect peace. And now I have issued a decree, and so this is the, the main gist of it, that any of the people of Israel and their priests and the Levites in my kingdom who are willing to go to Jerusalem may go with, may, may go with you. So Ezra, you can go, and anybody else that wants to go can go. And you go, how many times does God have to tell these people, get out of Babylon? And once again, I mean, this is amazing. This is miraculous that these secular kings who are ruthless as a rule are pouring out kindness and grace on this one people. And they stay put. So now we only, like I said, we're going to have only maybe 5,000 people return. First time, almost 50,000. That wasn't many. And so the numbers are getting less. And then he lists a number of things that they are to do, that Ezra specifically is to do, and that the others can join in. And he says in verse 14, For, in his, for as much as you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, to inquire of your God. And so concerning Judah and Jerusalem to inquire. So what is it he's saying? You're a priest. So somebody has been instructing him, probably Ezra, in what, he, what Ezra wants to do when he goes, why do you want to go back, Ezra? He goes, because I'm a priest. And I want to go back and intercede for my people. I can intercede for them here, but a priest is meant to be in Israel. And his number one job is to intercede on behalf of the people. Second job is to teach them the word of God. First, pray for them. And second, instruct them in the word of God. And so Artaxerxes is going, I don't see any problem with that. And so he fully supports it and says, go back and pray for your people according to the law of your God. Now, another thing to point out as we go through these verses, um, starting in verse 12 to 26, there are 16 different times that this pagan king makes reference to the God of Israel. And several of, them, of those times, he calls them the God of heaven. Pretty amazing. And it is, it's so he says, go back, pray for your people according to the law of your God. And then verse 15 and bring with you silver and gold, which we, the king and his seven counselors, have contributed, and which the people of Israel are, are contributing, and even the people of the Persians, particularly those in Babylon, are contributing. So take all the silver and gold you can take back with you. And we know from the account that they give, it was many tons of silver and gold that they took back. Millions and millions of dollars in silver and gold that they returned with. Some of it contributed by the king himself, his counselors, and the people of his kingdom. And so they were to pray. He was to pray for his people. He was to bring back silver and gold, and that was to be used um, for the house of the Lord. 
I'm just going to read through the list. We'll not go through all the verses. They were to buy with that silver and gold bulls and rams and lambs and grain, and, and grain offerings. And they were to do as seems good to him and to his brothers according to the will of God. They were to bring back all the temple utensils which were still in Persia. And they were to, to supply any other needs for the temple from the, from the treasury of that area. And the local authorities had to assist them and supply for them whatever they needed. And the priests and the Levites would be completely exempt from all taxation, as, as well as anybody else serving in the temple. And then he finally says he's authorizing Ezra, <coughs> according to his wisdom, verse 25, to appoint magistrates and judges that they may judge all the people who are in all the province beyond the river, even all those who know the laws of your God, and that you may teach anyone <coughs> who is ignorant of them. And whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed upon him strictly, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of goods or for imprisonment. <coughs> so he's, he's not only told him go back and pray, go back and teach, but I'm making you, in essence, what one writer called him the Secretary of State for Jewish Affairs. And he says, you're in charge. You can appoint magistrates and rulers. You can administrate law. You can even kill people if they don't obey the word of God and the laws of the king. Wow. Ezra has really been elevated. And all of this, he says again, because the hand of God had stirred him. Verse 27, blessed be, the, the, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, <coughs> who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart, to adorn the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty princes. Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go with me." So Ezra recognizes this is supernatural. This is not a pagan king simply responding to the geopolitical situation of the day. God had moved his heart. To have this kind of favor and blessing poured out, there's no explanation for it than God. Now, who was this Ezra? We're told that he, in verse, chapter 7, verse um, 6, that he, or actually verse 5, that he is a direct descendant of Aaron. So he's a priest. In verse 6, he's a scribe, which meant that he was, his life was focused as a priest on specifically the Word of God, knowing it and teaching it. So he's a priest, he's a scribe, and we're also told that he was skilled. He was an especially skilled scribe in the law of Moses. Um, my understanding of the Jewish culture was that every Jewish boy, by the time he reached bar, bar mitzvah age, 12 years old, he was expected to have been, be able to recite the entire Pentateuch. Um, that's pretty impressive. So you think, what else did that kid do for the first 12 years of his life than memorize scripture? And so that's what, I mean, they, he just was saturated in knowing scripture. And if he was of the line of Aaron, and was going to serve as a priest, he was expected to have memorized everything that was inspired. So as much of the Old Testament as they had, they memorized it. And as the Old Testament continued to be written, they continued to memorize. And so a modern-day person who is, would be considered a rabbi of, of Levitical descent would be expected to memorize the entire Old Testament. That would be Ezra. So it's pretty much all been written. Malachi is maybe the only book that hadn't been written yet when Ezra is on the scene. And so this is a guy who has faithfully fulfilled his duty to memorize the entire Old Testament. And he hasn't just memorized it, he's skilled in the use of it. He's a remarkable man, brilliant, and he knows his Bible. He's a priest, he's a scribe, He's skilled in the law of Moses, and God's hand is on this man. It's twice we're told that when we're told about, about Ezra. So in at the end of verse 6, he says that the king granted him all that he requested because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. 
And then at the end of verse 9, the good hand of his God was upon him. God's favor and blessing is on this man. We're also told that he um, was a man of integrity. He didn't just study the word, but he also applied it. That's an integrity thing. That you read God's word, not just for the information, not just that you can have answers to everybody's questions and be the smartest guy in the room, but you read God's word in order to know God. It's personal. It is a personal revelation of God. You read it to know him, and when God reveals himself to you, you have but one response, and that is obedience. And so when God was making himself known to Ezra, Ezra was committed to doing what God said, applying God's word, obeying God. And then from that, teaching others. So this is a man who taught out of what God was doing in his own life. And I believe you could could hear Ezra speak, and he could say, I know this is true because I have not only seen it in God's word, but I have lived it. And so that speaks of integrity. Good guy. We also know that he's considered a wise man where it says in verse 25, And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God, which is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges. And he was also in possession of the word of God, which not all Jews had possession of, but Ezra did. So those are basically the credentials of Ezra. Now, I want us just to think about this a little bit. Come down to, again, verse 9 and 10, where it says, The good hand of his God was upon him. And then verse 10, 4. So this is an explanation. Why was God's hand upon Ezra? For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and his ordinances in Israel. Now, when you see the same statement repeated six times in two chapters, something's being emphasized. And in six times in chapters 7 and 8, it speaks about the hand of God being on Ezra or on the journey, things of that nature. The good hand of our God was on us. Six times. Chapter 7, verse 6, verse 9, verse 28, and chapter 8, verse 18, 22, in 31. So I want to focus on two things now. One, Ezra studying the word, applying it, and teaching it. The way it's set up, you can't help but get the sense that it's unique. And then the other emphasis here is the six references to the good hand of the Lord, and you can't help but get the sense that too was unique. So with Ezra, it's a great thing that this man was so dedicated to the Word of God. The problem is that it's so unique. Shouldn't have been. He's being singled out Because he is exceptional. And this is an area that should never be exceptional in a person's life. It ought to be normal. When you think about all that the Bible is and all that it brings to us, all the ways that God works through Scripture, you have to think, why would any Christian not be like Ezra? studying it intently, applying it, and then teaching others. I could spend the whole hour just reading Psalm 119 and not be done because that one Psalm, 176 verses I believe it is, that tells us the benefit of God's word. Some believe written by Ezra. We shouldn't have to be told as Christians that this book, the Word of God, is the only thing in this world, and I mean only thing in this world, 
that is untainted by sin. Do we realize that? I'm speaking to myself here. Because I'm in the ministry, and my job description is to teach God's Word. But the real test is, what am I doing with it when I'm not in the classroom or in the pulpit? There is nothing else in this world that is untainted by sin. Nothing. This book alone, every page, every word, every letter is from God. Jesus made that point very clearly in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says not the, not a, not the smallest letter or part of a letter will pass away until it is all fulfilled. It is the eternal, living, abiding Word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide between thought and intention, soul and spirit, and God still speaks today through His Word. Anything else you go to, any person you go to, you, you will likely have a mixture of truth and error. There is no mixture of truth and error with this book. It is 100% the Word of God. There is nothing else like this. So to spend your life studying God's Word or just to wake up in the morning and read a chapter is not unprofitable. It is the wisest use of time that you could have. I was so shocked when I was in seminary and went to visit a great uncle and his son, one of my cousins, professing believers, educated men, highly respected in their community. And I hadn't seen either one of them in many years. And as soon as they had a moment with me without my wife and grandmother and their wives, man, they were just on me like a dog on a bone. And they were going, what are you doing spending your life studying the Bible. Two professing Christian men, leaders in their local church. Wow. The Bible is the only true source of wisdom and authority. There is no other. It's not your elders. It's not your pastor. It is God's word. We have to understand this. It is the only source of what is sure, accurate, and true concerning Jesus Christ. If you are going to know God in truth and worship Him in spirit and in truth, you must have God's Word. Because any other source of revelation of Jesus is again tainted by sin. This is why it's not enough just to look at creation and meditate on it, which is the work of God. But creation itself is under the curse of sin. And it is no longer a completely accurate revelation of God. And God never intended for creation to be a revelation of Jesus' work on our behalf. That He became man, lived a sinless life, died for us on the cross, rose again from the dead, that he might indwell us. You will never get that from creation. The only place you can get that is from the Word of God. It is the only means of salvation, spiritual growth, restoration of our souls, encouragement, perseverance, Freedom from sin. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We love quoting the last part of that verse. The truth will set you free. But we forget the first part. If you abide in my word, you will know the truth, 
and the truth will set you free. For moral encouragement, moral purity, for hope, all of this God gives us through his word. Any other means that he uses is secondary. So I can get these things directly from God. God gives these things through his word. To say that you don't need the Bible would be to say like you don't, that you don't need to eat. To say that you can live well spiritually without the scriptures is to be deceived. Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And this is the word of God. This is the word that is proceeded from his mouth. It is not hate speech. Isn't it amazing? I mean, our country was founded on the truths of this book, inscribed in stone in our institutions, and now it's being labeled hate speech. And to simply read it, you could lose your job, maybe even end up in jail. It is truth. It is not hate speech. It is not impractical to study it and to know it, to meditate on it, to feed off of it, but rather it is expedient. It is necessary. It is vital. It is indispensable. I am so thankful that in, I know in this church I am not the only one who knows God's word. And I do not consider myself an expert in God's word. I should know it better than I do. We all should. It is a sad thing if a person thinks there's only one person I can go to to get the answer. How could any Christian think that when he has this book and he has the author of the book living in him? And to think, I need to go to Charlie for the answer? Or I need to go and you can fill in the blank? John Piper, John MacArthur, and they become our authority? You can be an Ezra. And each of us should be. We have the author and we have his words. That should never be substituted for commentaries written by men. The best, most educated, most skilled handlers of God's word are going to get things wrong. It's why we need more than one man. I feel sorry for Ezra. If he is the only guy, that puts him in a terrible position. And I feel sorry for Israel. What chance do they have of moving forward spiritually if Ezra is the only guy who really knows the word of God? Because they're all going to be dependent on him and not on God. We should listen to more than one person. And nobody should be threatened by that if he's a teacher of the Bible. It's a good thing. I sit in Sunday school classes and I look forward to it. And whoever's teaching, I never fail to learn. We all need to hear other voices, especially other than our own. And we should never forget how vital the Word of God is to us. We should never forget that the one who wrote it lives in us, and he can give us understanding. 
So I'm wanting to challenge moms and dads. Read God's word for yourself. Make it a habit. And if you have children that are still at home, read it to your children. You don't have to know the Greek and Hebrew. If you can read English and you've got the author living in your heart, you're well-placed. You can know what God is saying. Some parts are difficult to understand. Even Peter said that concerning Paul's writings. Some of the things that he says are hard to understand. Amen. And I can say, Peter, I can put you in that group too, buddy, because you know, you're not always easy to understand. But you don't have to have it all figured out. I can't... Second to praying for my children, the most important thing I ever did was read the word to them in the morning before I went off to work. And I can't tell you how many times I'd show up in staff meeting and share with the staff what I just learned by reading the word to my kids. And they were going, different ones were going, I wish I could sit in on that Bible reading time that Charlie's having with his kids. And it wasn't stuff that I'd planned. I'm just reading it, being obedient to the God in faith, just reading his word, not with the purpose of exegeting it or, or making all kinds of tremendous insight, just reading God's word to my children. And many times, not every day, but many times, God would, would show me something I'd never seen before. And, I, and so the kids could sense that I'm being taught. I'm excited about what God's showing me. And so it's living for me. It's not just going through emotion. And when you live that way, honestly and openly, you're going, man, I've never seen this before. Doesn't that give hope and encouragement to your children? Because if they've got the author living in them, and they've got God's very words in their hands, what could you cherish more? How could you better spend your time? You will never regret encouraging your children in God's word. If you don't have children, you still need God's word. You know, I say pretty much the same things every year when we finish up, you know, last, and I, last evening, and, and I, I never know what to say. You know, how do you be new and everything? You've been doing it for so long, and, and the truth remains the same. And I tell you, one thing I, I, I forget, I, and I'm, I forget, one thing that I remember more than anything at this time of year is something that Bill Bushhouse once said to our students at the closing of the year. And he says, I can predict and I'm no prophet. But he says, I can predict who's going to do well and who's not. If you stay in God's word and stay in church, you will do well. And you get out of God's word or stop going to church, you will not do well. It's as simple as that. Because that is how God has intended to nurture us through his word, and through his people. It isn't complicated. And you show me a Christian who is not with God's people, fellowshipping and worshiping on a regular basis, or a Christian who is not in God's word, and I'll show you one who's probably not doing well. It's not how God intended. I know there's extraordinary circumstances where people can't be in church, and maybe they do not own a copy of Scripture. Those are extraordinary circumstances. And they're not ours. And then the second emphasis of these chapters is that six-time repeated refrain, the hand of the Lord our God was on him or on us. Clearly, that is not meant to be something that is always true, where it wouldn't have been emphasized like it is. 
is not to be just assumed, which we can so easily do as Christians who understand the new covenant and the grace of God. I do not have to pray for God's presence. Amen? He is in me. You don't get more present than that. So it always kind of grates me a little bit when I hear people pray that God would be present, that God would show up. And I'm going, he's already shown up. He's in me. He, doesn't, I, he can't be more present than that. But I also understand that sin places a barrier between me and God. Not positionally. Nothing is going to break the covenant relationship that I have with God. No sin can break that covenant. But yeah, it can put a a barrier. And when we sin, we must confess our sin, acknowledge it for what it is, And he is faithful and righteous to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to forgive us. When we walk in the light with God, we have fellowship with God and with one another. So that tells us that when we are not walking in the light, we are not going to have that fellowship with God or with one another as God has intended. You can sin to your heart's contentment, and you're never going to be content. (laughs) You can sin to the cows come home, as I like to say, and you will always know God's grace because sin will never exhaust God's grace. But you will not know his life because the wages of sin is death. And as I've said before, I want more than to know God's grace. I want to know his life. And I know what it's like to live, and you just sense, this is good. God is doing something. God is at work. And you know it has nothing to do with you. It's not because you've been, you know, living the formula, but you've just simply been walking in the light with him. And you see God just making life work. Doesn't mean all the problems go away, but even in the midst of the problems, somehow you're at peace. You can think. You're not panicked. All is well. I can't even describe, but you know. You know what I'm talking about. You know when it's like you're functioning in your sweet spot and when you're not. When you sense the good hand of God is on you. And it's not talking about being saved or not saved. It's talking about just the, a special enabling of God, a special sense that he is at work, and he's doing what can only be explained by his activity as we're reading in these chapters. Only God can be explained for what's happening here, not geopolitical situations. So this is not something that the Christians should just assume But it actually is a consequence of functioning according to the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, living in dependence upon Christ and in obedience to Him. Or as Ian Thomas used to like to say, allowing God to reestablish that broken connection between love, dependence, and obedience. And when that's reestablished, I love God, and I am dependent upon God, and I am obeying God, I will sense the good hand of God on my life, even when everything is not going right. It means I'm not functioning according to the flesh. I'm not walking according to the flesh but I'm walking according to the Spirit. It means that I'm living true to both the living Word, Jesus Christ, and the written Word. So let me be clear. You cannot read Ezra. Maybe you can, but you shouldn't. You shouldn't be able to read Ezra and not see the clear emphasis 
on living in accordance with God's word. Ezra was doing that. That was one of the first things that was mentioned in this book, as it is written, said several times. That's not legalism. He's talking about a, this is the outflow of a personal relationship with him. But if I can claim, and it's a false claim, but if I think I can claim that I am living true to Jesus, but I am not living true to his word, I am deceived. Because there is no daylight between Jesus and his word. None whatsoever. The living word and the written word are inseparable. I didn't like it when I heard one of my seminary professors say one time, you know Jesus only as well as you know your Bible. Because I, I heard legalism. That's not what he was saying. He was saying this book is the revelation of Jesus. And you read this book to know Jesus. And the better you know Jesus, it'll be because the better you know this book. And if you think that your life is sweet with Jesus, and somebody can point out to you glaring contradictions between your life and the Word of God, your life is not sweet with Jesus. We must live according to Christ, according to His Word, if we are going to know the good hand of God upon us. And again, I hope you hear this is not legalism. It is simply how God has designed that we live. Paul makes an almost funny statement in 1 Corinthians. We looked at it recently with the students where he says, food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. <laughs> yeah, duh. But then he follows it up and he says, and the body is for God, and God is for the body. Huh. And then he has to throw in, the body is not for immorality. Why do you need to tell a Christian those things? Isn't it sufficient just to have the Holy Spirit in you? It ought to be. Why would another Christian need to be told, you have not been made for immorality? Because we think we can be right with God and be living immoral lives. We think that we can be right with God and living a life that contradicts God's word. And God knows that about us. And so he comes along and says, no, he is a holy God. He has nothing to do with this what is unholy. You have not been made for immorality. You've been made for God. And God is for you. So we need to know these things. Chapter 8 is simply the account of the travels. And Ezra was embarrassed to say to Artaxerxes, um, can I have a guard, <laughs> an escort, military escort to get us from the 900 miles from here to there? Why was he embarrassed? Because apparently he's been telling Artaxerxes, Ezra has, how God will take care of him. God is the one we trust in. God is our supply. And now he's, how can he go and say Artaxerxes, um, by the way, it's a long journey and we've got millions of dollars with us. Couldn't. Didn't feel like he could. Nehemiah's going to ask for an armed escort. Ezra doesn't feel like he can. So out of embarrassment, out of shame, he doesn't ask for an, for an armed escort. And he still gets from A to B over 900, months, 900 miles, and it takes only four months. That was amazing. And they get there, and not anything has been lost. Nothing's been pilfered. They have a complete, accurate account of everything they started out with. It's what they ended up with. And then they have a time of worship, and then they deliver the king's edict. But it's not difficult to see what God is trying to stress in these two chapters. And again, simply, it is not a good thing when there's only one Ezra. 
we should all be Ezra's. We're not going to ever know, all know God's word to the same measure, but we can all have the same intent to study it, apply it, and out of that, teach it. And we will never, ever regret doing so. And if we want God's good hand on our lives, it means living true to Jesus. It means I need to know Him. I need to walk in a way that's true to Him, dependence upon Him, obedience to Him out of that dependence. And I need to know what the book says. Otherwise, I'm going to think that Jesus is something that He isn't, that He approves of something that He doesn't approve of. And once again, it comes back to the Word of God. It is so indispensable to our lives. I'll close this God, I thank you um, for these, these simple reminders. They all, it's just that for all of us, God, I know. But we do need your word, and it is nothing but just truth that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And I thank you, God, for all that you bring through us and you accomplish through your word. Our very salvation is because of your word. All spiritual growth is because of your word. Perseverance and encouragement because of your word. Hope because of your word. Life itself, God, because of your word. That we would not know you, we could not walk with you if it wasn't because of your word. And I pray, God, that we would cherish this privilege that you've given us. We know, God, that we can't change anything in this world, we're powerless. But with what's going on, I pray that our hearts would be stirred to know you more intimately and to walk in the light with you and that we would be Ezra's, studying, applying, and teaching as you give opportunity. And we thank you, God, for all that you will do in revealing yourself to us as we simply come to you through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.